Awesome Your Awesome Podcast, episode number 83. Today on the show, Myra Holzman is here with us. Myra is a psychotherapist and trauma resolution specialist. Her specialty is somatic therapy, co-regulating touch to heal developmental trauma and emotional neglect. I am so honored and delighted to have Myra here with us, sharing her wisdom and insights. Myra, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sue. I'm so stoked to be here. Oh, I am so stoked to have you here. So (laughs) I want to get into this with you, break it down for everybody. You are a clinical social worker, somatic experiencing practitioner. Give us the background. We're going to get into this, but tell us how you got into this field of work. Yeah. So um, I went to school and got my uh, master's of social work and I was living in California at the time that I was going through some big hardship uh, in my life, particularly around my relationship with my um, newlywed husband. And I was talking to a colleague and close friend of mine, and she started talking to me about somatic therapy. And this was back in 2007. And we started talking about what it was and why it would be really helpful. I ended up going to see Peter Levine do a free talk down in San Diego, and then also started seeing a somatically trained therapists at the time. And the ball just got rolling. It, it ended up being a really perfect fit for me. And I think that my friend knew that because I'm such a earthbound embodied person. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things I was struggling with were these unconscious habits and patterns that were not just thought-based, but def- definitely patterned in my body. And so I ended up taking the somatic experiencing training back in 2007 and then just kept following all of the breadcrumbs that led me to the place that I'm in now where I'm a somatic therapist and I do a specific form of healing touch called co-regulating touch. And it's been a tremendous journey and I can just about guarantee that without this journey, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. So what was that, 2007? So it's been a 15-year journey of training to be a somatic therapist, doing personal work, exploring different facets of somatic psychotherapy and just somatics in general, because it's actually quite a broad field. Mm, Okay. So can you tell us, talk to us a little more about somatics? Tell us, I mean, what does this mean exactly? Yeah. So somatics is really just Uh, in a really simple way to put it is study of the body or including the body. The way that I talk about somatics is including the body as an ally in the healing process. And in general, what that means is for me is when I'm working with clients is teaching them how to really listen to how the body speaks. Unlike the mind that is very verbal and strategic and can go backward and forward in time, past and, and future, also present time, the body can only really live in present time uh, in that whatever sensations, whatever physiological shifts that are happening are only happening right now. They're not something that's going to happen in 10 minutes unless we do something to create that experience. So in my in my experience and in my mind, somatics is a very holistic way of 
interacting with people, not just for, not just for, for healing, but also for relationships, for leadership, for anything that we need to do, because all of us live in these really magnificent, highly intelligent, powerful bodies. And we get so much information from these bodies all the time. And if we haven't really been taught how to listen to our bodies, or if trauma has occurred that really makes us, creates an obstacle to listening to our bodies, then we're missing out on a huge field of information that can really support us, not just in our healing path, but in, in growing and evolving as people. Mm, wow. I love this. So tell me, Myra, were you always kind of drawn to exploring alternative means of healing or how did that come about for you? You know, I actually, so I've been a seeker my whole life. I grew up in a um, immigrant family and I was born in the Philippines and then we came over here when I was two. And my parents are very by the book people and they're very old school Filipinos. And I always just thought that there was something more to what was happening. I remember in particular having a conversation with my mom. I was eight years old and we were in the car and she was complaining about her job. And I said, I said something like, well, why don't you quit if you don't like your job? And she said to me, oh, you'll see, you'll, you'll end up doing the same thing. Everybody hates their job. And I remember being eight and going, nope, I do not <laughs> want to do that. And so I, I share that story because I'm, I feel that in my family, I'm the one that's well outside the bounds of the box that my family had for me in terms of what their aspirations for were for me. They wanted me to be a nurse or a doctor or a teacher or an engineer or a lawyer and follow a very traditional path. And this was back in the 80s. And so I really understand where they were coming from. And um, I always knew that I wanted to help people. I just didn't know how I wanted to help people. So after I started social work and found somatics, everything kind of exploded from there because at least in my experience, once you get into learning to listen to the body and trust the body as an ally, then there are all of these other modalities that can open up. And so I've been, especially in my adult life, adult life, a seeker of all different kinds of modalities. I feel like there's so many re so many roads that lead home to healing and to the self. It doesn't even have to be through somatic psychotherapy. It could be through psychedelics. It could be through having a great life coach, like many different ways of being. And this just happens to be the one that I chose. Mm, yeah. I love that. And so as you are kind of going through this training and then you start practicing this work. I mean, was there a clear affirmation there? Like, yes, this is, I'm on the right path. I love what I'm doing. This is so, I'm making this impact and it feels great. Yeah. So what came to mind in your question is when I attended the first module of beginning one for somatic experiencing, and I was working with a trainer and this was at a, this was at a location right by the beach in Carlsbad, California. And one of the first activities was to basically follow any impulse that you had. And you had this partner that would follow and mimic everything that you were doing. And so it was this free, it was this permission to be any way that you needed to be. You could have sat in the sand and laid there for an hour. You could have done whatever. And I watched my peers doing all kinds of things. And for me to have that kind of permission to be fully in my body and to have someone that was going to be a witness and a supporter and a partner and however I wanted to show up. 
I mean, that first training was everything for me. I was hooked right there because that isn't really how I think we live. I don't think pe people in general live in their bodies in such a way that they get to be delighted. And one of my superpowers is feeling delight and expressing delight and joy. And so I got to spend two hours with somebody else just being in pure joy and delight and frolicking in the water and throwing sand and doing cartwheels and all of these kinds of things. So yeah, I was pretty hooked from the first session. And then as I deepened my training, I just sort of kept following all of these places where I needed my own healing that I didn't know, right? I mean, that's one of the things is that if you're not connected to your body, in my experience, you don't know all of the all of the things that are housed in there. And I think that's also what makes it scary to do somatic work sometimes for people, especially with uh, trauma, because if you don't know what's happening in the body, sometimes, you know, ignorance is bliss. So I just kept following the the breadcrumbs. And I mean, I can honestly say just to jump to today, I'm, I'm crazy about what I do. Like, I am so into doing the work that I do with clients and seeing what I feel like are modern day miracles. Um, you know, people learning how to like really shift out of somatic patterns in sustainable ways that don't always require a lot of effort. Um, you know, healing, sometimes I think people get afraid because it, it it takes a lot of effort. And that's true, especially in the beginning, when you've got to learn all of these new ways and new practices of being. And then, you know, one of the things I believe about the body is that it's innately intelligent and powerful. So if I really trust, believe, and know that to be true, then after a time, after the clients start to, for example, have more ease and learning how to relate to their body, have a relationship with their body and listen, then the body knows how to heal itself. And my job is to be a trusty guide and companion as things unfold so that they're not in the hard parts alone as they may have been for most of their life. I, I as a sidebar, I specialize in working with folks who have early trauma. So I'm, we're talking about people who have had, you know, not just experienced trauma from maltreatment, like abuse and neglect, but trauma from, you know, being impoverished or experiencing racism consistently. And what I have found is that somatics is the way, and particularly the approach that uh, I use, which is called co-regulating touch, has been a tremendous support for healing the nervous system versus just learning how to cope because those are two really different ways of being in the world. Mm, okay. So you have, there's so much, there's a lot <laughs> that, you just said that I have to respond to and ask uh, some other questions. So first of all, I love, love, love that you said my superpower is feeling delight and joy. And I want to talk to you about that. I'm going to get back to that in a moment, okay. but um, so many questions here. So co-regulating touch. Can you talk a little yeah. more about that? Explain that to us. Yeah. So co-regulating touch was uh, the name given to this approach by my teachers, uh, Kathy Kane and Stephen Terrell. And what it is, it's a, it's a passive form of touch. And what I mean by passive is that if you saw me working with a client, you wouldn't see me doing much. Like I have my hand under their back and I'm holding their kidneys, quote unquote, or I'm cradling their skull and I'm holding their brainstem. And what it is, is it's kind of magical, but it's using intention to come into a client's uh, body, nervous system, specific parts of the nervous system that I just named to the way that I think about it is to help 
remind the body how to be in what's called a regulated rhythm, right? So a regulated rhythm as we come up into activation doesn't have to be, that's that's code for stress. It doesn't have to be bad stress. It could also be really good stress. So when I, you know, when my daughter was younger and I would be really excited to go pick her up, I would be in uh, eustress is what it's called, activation. Um, and then after that happens and I get her in the car and we're on the road home, my body settles down and I come down into that parasympathetic functioning. The cool thing about what I'm talking about, and I heard this just recently on your on your podcast, is a lot of people know about nervous system regulation. Um, and specifically, if you've had early trauma, that rise and fall of the nervous system, activation, settling, activation, settling, that template isn't there. Um, because there wasn't enough safety for the nervous system to learn how to do that. And that's one of the primary functions of parenting is to create a safe environment for their children and also to teach their children how to self-soothe when there is stress. And what co-regulating touch does is it, the metaphor that I use is um, with my clients, especially the new ones that come in, like, okay, your nervous system has built, been built in such in a certain way. And perhaps it wasn't built with the best materials and it didn't have the best engineers to create a solid structure that can withstand hard elements. And what co-regulating touch does is it comes in and, and, and session by session or piece by piece, it replaces some of that nervous system architecture that is maybe a little flimsy, isn't quite as strong as it needs to be, and replaces it with solid materials that can withstand the test of time, which is really akin to being able to handle stress better. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So how about some practical tips on people learning? Is there something people can do to learn to kind of sense and feel and kind of co-regulate um, just at home or on their own if they're having like a, you know, kind of yeah. a moment or something? Any kind of guidance there? Sure. I mean, if we're talking about co-regulation, which is basically regulation with someone, right? So that's what happens with a little baby and their and their parent or, or caregiver. So if that caregiver is regulated and solid and doesn't have a lot of stress in their life, that baby is going to really pick up that rhythm of rise and fall. For folks who maybe didn't have that, um, one way to co-regulate is to find a safe enough friend, right? Safe enough other that when you're with them, you feel safe enough. And safe enough could be I just feel a little bit less anxious when I'm around this person, or I feel a little bit more grounded, or I feel like I can be more myself. Often when we can be more authentically expressed, we're usually in a relationship with someone where we can be co-regulated. And um, because what I do is hold people, if that person is safe enough and you can just get them to hold your hand if you're really stressed out or really upset about something, or have them just gently put their hand on the on your back somewhere that feels good enough for you, right? That's how we start to do co-regulation, and and I mean, that's the way that I would teach it in its in its simplest form is who do you feel safe enough with, and if you go when you're with that person, can you start to notice what's happening in your body that tells you that you are settling, right? And or how do you know in your from your body's perspective that you feel safe enough with them? Is it that you can take long, slow, deep breaths? Is it that your mind starts to not ruminate and go at super high speeds and is much more spacious, right? Is it that you can laugh more easily versus feel tense in your body? Um, those kinds of things. So a lot of it would just be helping that person identify what it feels like in their body when they feel safe with someone and then to spend as much time as they can with that person and 
and listening to how their body keeps telling them, this is good. This feels awesome. Oh my God, I'm so relaxed. Oh, I, I could actually fall asleep. Oh, I did fall asleep. I just took a nap in front of this person. And I don't do that in front of anyone, anywhere, anytime. So it's a lot of awareness. Mm-hmm. And now and I appreciate that. And that's amazing guidance. And so I kind of misspoke there and meant self-regulation. And so, oh. and I'm, some of this kind of goes hand in hand with that, right? Yeah. So can you kind of, is there something really like a practical tip for just if you're by yourself and having something, something you can do to kind of start calming the nervous system or. Yeah. I mean, this would be an interesting thing to explore, but the first thing that comes to mind is how, how that person maybe touches themselves. And I don't mean that in any sexual way, but I'm even talking about like putting lotion on your hands, right? Like, can you put lotion on your hands as as a form of self-regulation and feel the sensations of hands rubbing together and creating warmth of the slipperiness, excuse me, between your fingers or on the top of your hands or on the bottom of your hands and slowing down long enough to really track, does this sensation of putting lotion on my hands, it doesn't have to be your hands, it could be your knees, it could be your feet, but really letting yourself feel that good enough contact, that good enough pressure and touching your own body in a way that feels soothing and grounding for you. That's one of the simplest things. I had a girlfriend when I was in graduate school and whenever we would take tests, I would look over at her and she would be stroking her forehead. She'd be like pacing her bangs down to her her forehead. And I remember asking her about that. I was like, what, you know, does that, what does that do for you? Because you do it every time we take a test. And she's like, I didn't even know I did that. So the next time she took the test, she came back and she said, it actually really helps me concentrate because that, you know, that however much pressure she puts on her forehead and the contact of her hand on her forehead, just gently rubbing, you know, her hand rubbing her forehead is enough to help her brain focus better. That's a form of self-regulation and it, and it involves touch specifically. Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. love that, Myra. Yeah. Now, um, so now, you know, let's talk about early trauma. So it, I, you know, this is, unfortunately, it seems like it's so common and so often neglected, like not dealt with. Right. And we kind of carry it into adulthood. So, um, how talk to us about that and how we can feel safe as adults and, uh, you know, allowing that to come up or honoring it, or even recognizing that, Hey, okay, this feeling is maybe a trigger from something else that I haven't dealt with. Yeah. I mean, it's a really great question. I I'm glad you're bringing it up and I will try to answer it the best I can. So early trauma, one of the hardest parts that comes with trauma in general is that shame is almost always connected to the trauma and even even exponentially so when there's been early trauma. So to define early trauma, early trauma is basically um, adverse experiences that created an overall sense of lack of safety in, in the environment in which that child grew up. Now, most people think of physical abuse, sexual assault, that kind of thing as, as, or as trauma, and that is for sure true. And neglect is also a huge part of early trauma. And 
what I have found, especially in the clients I work with, is that people often sweep neglect under the rug because it's not this it's not this super obvious thing of like, well, my parents broke my bones or they, you know, they hurt me or that kind of thing. Or or they didn't even, sometimes it isn't even that parents say mean things or treat their children with contempt. Neglect can be just a pervasive lack of attending to um, not just uh, basic needs, which often is not the case, but more of the emotional needs. So, you know, the story that I often hear from some of my clients is like, I didn't have any trauma. And I'm like, okay, great. So we have a little conversation about like, okay, so what was your early life like? And I ask a few questions here and there. And I'll say, so, you know, how does, what was the culture of emotions like in your family? And then the client will kind of pause and I'll be like, well, you know, everything was fine. Like I got hurt and I was supposed to be fine. Or I got upset about a friend getting mad at me and I was told it wasn't a big deal. Like it's just, you know, mm. don't worry, just don't be their friend. And when you don't attend to a child's emotional needs, which frankly, in my opinion, are just, I mean, they are just as central as any physical needs that you can provide for. Then what happens is that child starts to, in a basic way, believe that their emotional needs either don't matter or that what they're experiencing is crazy, right? So if I say to my mom, I'm really upset, you didn't let me go to the sleepover, she'll be like, why are you upset? That's not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. And I think of that as like death by a thousand paper cuts, because for that kid, and that kid was actually me, because my parents were really not into sleeping sleepovers. They never wanted me to go. Um, it was like, this was central to my life as a, as a six-year-old, as a 10-year-old, as a 15-year-old, because that's where all of my social connections happened. So I never, you know, in, in my life, my parents really never knew how to meet me emotionally. It was always um, dealt either with avoidance or with contempt. And so as a young adult, you better believe that's exactly how I treated myself. Like I would have tender, vulnerable emotions and I would be inside my head going like, this is stupid. Like, why are you being such a dumbass? This is ridiculous. Like, what's the big deal? But inside I was really hurting. And with early trauma, it's almost like there's this big void. And I've had clients describe it to me as this, as, as like being out in outer space with no ability to contain those unmet needs. That's another way of describing early trauma is a, a consistent lack of your earliest, most important needs going unmet, particularly emotionally in, in the case of neglect. Um, so wow. I want to pause here. Yeah. Am I, am I answering your question? You are. Yes. And I think okay. you were saying you want to pause here, but I want you to keep going, but you were, what were you going <laughs> to say there? Well, I was going to, I was going to ask what the question was because I can, you know, the way that I operate is that so as it is, I think maybe with a lot of people, but so many things lead to the next. And what I'm noticing as we're talking is like the tenderness. I mean, I, I specialize in working with adults who have experienced early trauma and I see everything about their life that is impacted by that. It's their relationships, it's their health, it's their sense of self, it's their self-worth, it's their ability to make more money or be, you know, choose work that's actually fulfilling for them. And when it gets right down to it, the people that are attracted to working with me all have this early experience of some kind of um, either maltreatment, like abuse, uh, neglect, or other other societal factors, like growing up really impoverished, or you know dealing with racism and aggressions and microaggressions their whole life, and not really understand. Like no one ever, you know, their parents didn't mentor them or guide them and say 
like this isn't okay. This is not how one gets treated with dignity and you get to stand up for yourself, for example. So I feel, I think that you're right when you said, I think it's, I think you said something like early trauma is maybe swept under the rug or not talked about a lot. I think that most folks who develop, for example, symptoms of PTSD from a specific event, which is called a shock trauma, have earlier precursors and having early tra earlier trauma, because when you have earlier early trauma and it doesn't get attended to until you get an adult, your nervous system is not as strong and resilient and can't bounce back as someone who had all of those or a lot of those needs met much more consistently. Does that make sense? It does. And this yeah. is all fascinating. And, you know, it's um, interesting. So like, how does one begin <clears throat> to even kind of honor and acknowledge? Cause like, I really, you know, speaking again to what I was saying, I feel like in many cases, you know, and you have this experience obviously daily with your clients where people don't even realize because it wasn't physical abuse. It wasn't that sort of abuse. They don't realize that they're carrying some sort of trauma into adulthood. So where yeah. someone's kind of sensing some sort of something inside, right? Where do they begin to kind of open that up? Yeah. Um, well, without going to seek out a therapist, usually what I've heard my clients say, and I can also speak for myself, is that I had to really sit down and acknowledge for me, when I started on the path of, of getting, you know, my own healing path, I had to acknowledge that the ways that particularly the ways that I was showing up in relationship was I just kept messing it up. Like I kept getting mad at people thinking that that was okay. And that I was kind of righteous and being able to say like, wow, you were late for dinner for 30 minutes. And I'm like really angry with you and watching them just back away from me. And I kept being like, what, what is it about me? Right. So it, it started with the question with what's wrong with me. And um, I'm sure you've heard about the book from Oprah and Bruce Perry, who's a child development expert, where instead of like, what, what's wrong with you? They ask the question, what happened to you? And I think that's a really apt way to begin is like, okay, there are these things I'm ashamed of doing in my relationships. And what happened to me that this is how I show up in all of my relationships when I'm under duress or when I'm under conflict. And I love that they wrote that book because it, it, in my opinion, it eases the shame that people often feel when they're like, why can't my life be great? Why is it that I didn't get that job? Why is it that I can't find that partner? Why is it that I keep feeling rejected? Why is it that I keep feeling less than worthy than everyone around me who seems to be doing really well and, and thriving? And so to answer your question is to acknowledge, well, what happened that might be, what happened in my life that contributed to what's happening right now? And I think that's a really important thing because when you ask what happened, there's no, hopefully there's no blame, shame, or judgment. It's more just like, yeah, I grew up with parents who treated me with contempt most of the time. I grew up with parents who used physical violence, bullying, and coercion to get me to obey, right? And these are these are aspects of my own history that have been true. And you know, I've, I've definitely talked about it in other podcasts and also on my website and blog posts and that kind of thing. So I don't have any shame about it. It is literally just what happened. And to be able to acknowledge just with, without that judgment, like this is what happened. And I wonder if this contributes to the reason why I'm struggling with addiction right now, right? Like that's really a big, to me, that's one of the bravest steps. Before you even talk to anybody, that's one of the bravest steps you could do is be like, okay, I'm just gonna maybe consider the possibility that what happened 
when I was younger is really contributing to how I'm showing up today and I don't know how to fix it. And then I need to go talk to someone. I need to talk to a friend. I need to talk to someone who maybe understands me and knows my history or actually go seek out professional help. Mm, God, this is such a fascinating, like I'm, my brain is just like going <laughs> down this rabbit hole because it's, it's a so- lot. It's a lot. And it's so common, right? Where, okay, if I wasn't abused and, uh, you know, my parents were however they were, but my friend might've been raised in that same manner where like parents just don't know, right. They're not necessarily abusing you, but they're not necessarily attending to your emotions. So you just, everyone's kind of growing up, right. Being unattended emotionally. And we all just kind of become these adults and think, okay, uh, you know, that's normal. And then that's it's right. not enter adulthood, right? That you start acknowledging, hey, wait, there were things here that weren't attended to. So question for you now, you know, as adults, are there some practical tips for more powerfully meeting others emotionally? More practical tips for meeting others more powerfully emotionally. Or, you, yeah, like, you yeah. know, meeting others emotionally. So being more responsive to others' emotions. Like, what are some tips for doing that in a more powerful, more loving, more empathetic way? How do we show up for others? Yeah. Um, right? Yeah. And kind of acknowledge other people's emotions. Um, are there practical tips for that? Yes, a thousand percent. I love this question, actually. And it's so funny because the same things I'm about to tell you are the exact same things I tell to my clients, especially when I'm doing table work. Because you, as you can imagine, my clients come in with these huge feelings, right? And sometimes they don't have any feelings, which is just the other side of the coin. They're just totally shut down. And when my clients are really activated and they're in what's called the trauma vortex, where they're just experiencing really big emotions that feel out of control and scary, And I'm saying this with full presence. It's not as simple as just saying the words, but you have to say it with your whole self. And I'm, you can't, you can't see me, but I'm gesturing towards my heart. So what I say to them is I'm right here. I'm right here with you. Mm. Or I'll say, I'm listening. God, that's hard. And I'll validate what's happening because there's nothing I can do. There's, there's nothing I can do to fix it apart. You know, I mean, what I mean by that is I can't go back in time. But my attuned, loving, spacious, solid presence to say to them, I've got you. It's okay. I'm here. I could, I could actually tear up just saying it because I know how powerful that has been in my own life. Just being there with someone. Like a lot of people get into trouble because they want to fix it or they want to be like, you know, it'll pass soon. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. Like, don't worry about it right now. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I am worrying about it right now. Right? So mm-hmm. just being that loving... I, I call it a loving container. Like I've got you, I'm here with you. Because for most of us, I think, especially folks who have experienced early trauma, we have had to go through that hard, that adversity, that hard stuff all by ourselves, all the time, all the time dealing with these huge feelings that my parents never understood and always just sort of got mad at me about or sent me to my room for. So I'm in my room as like a six-year-old, as a 10-year-old with this little developing nervous system going, how the heck am I going to deal with these emotions? Oh my God. So when you say to someone, I'm right here with you, I'm listening, yes, I've got you, right? That goes a long way, especially when you say it with your with your heart wide open to them. Mm, I love that, Myra. Um, I really do. That's so powerful. It's now, ta- yeah. Now talk to me about your superpowers. 
Let's get into it. <laughs> How do people activate similar superpowers and learn to feel more delight and joy? Yes. Okay. So this is the first piece of homework I give to every single client. So if any of my, I'm sure I'm going to tell all my clients to listen to this podcast, but they'll all know. So when I meet with new clients and then throughout the entire length of stay, meaning the time that that client is working with me, the first piece of homework I say is I'll give to them is like every day at the end of the day, I want you to think of one good feeling experience that you had. It doesn't have to be awesome. It doesn't have to be like you got roses and flowers and someone proposed to you. It can be like, yeah, I woke up and I walked my dog and I saw this gorgeous sunset. And I'll say, just write down what happened. What, you know, and then I'll, they'll write down what they what I just said. And I'll say, and I want you in your mind's eye to just remember that sunset, that moment of quiet when it was just you and your dog and maybe the wind was blowing and nobody else was around before you started your really intense day. And then I want you to send your attention south into your body. And I want you to notice what might start to happen differently when you just hold that memory of that beautiful, not sunset, excuse me, sunrise, that beautiful sunrise in the morning. And then just notice what happens. And usually almost 100% of the time, clients will exhale or they will go, yeah, and their shoulders will drop away and their jaw will loosen and their front will become a little bit softer versus like sucking in their stomach or clenching their shoulders inside towards their body. Because it's, it's, one of the simplest, I shouldn't say, it's not always easy, but it's a simple way to start to relate to your body as this vehicle that really allows you to feel joy, pleasure, delight, connection, like all the things that, as, that we as humans really want. And so just remembering one good thing in the near term, not necessarily from a long time ago, but just something happened, something simple, something small. I read a really great article and it lit my brain up and I'll say, okay, so what's that like when your brain is lit up? Right. And meanwhile, they're looking across from me and they're smiling and all of a sudden they've got energy in their arms and they're gesticulating and they're breathing really well. And if they don't know that they're doing that, I will just gently reflect it back to them. Right. So my superpower is joy and delight because I always do all the practices that I tell my clients to do. And I am really good at, emb at embodying goodness. Right. Just generally like, man, that was a really like I'm having it right now with you. I love the way that you're talking to me. I love your questions. I can hear your excitement and it makes my chest swell like I can breathe a little bit easier, easier and I'm excited, but I'm not stressed. Right. That's practicing, sensing into and embodying goodness that literally is available to us almost all of the time, even in the hardest of circumstances right? It's like, okay, well, I can think about my daughter who I love to death. And that's making this really long, hard day with clients be just a little bit better, even if it's just momentary. Mm, wow. I love that, Myra. That was so um, just beautifully put and so powerful. And I hope, uh, you know, I, I know people are going to get some really powerful takeaways there for embodying uh, joy and goodness. So that's amazing. Now, well, next question for you. So enlisting your body as an ally in healing, where does one begin with this? Well, it could start with what I just named, right? That, that simple healing exercise. Um, right now, one of the things I've been really obsessed about uh, is listening specifically into my upper chest cavity. So being a somatic therapist, I'm I'm always paying attention to sensations and physiological shifts, especially impulses. 
And um, because life is at breakneck speed and I keep trying to figure out, I think as everybody does, how to kind of slow it down. And one of the ways I've learned how to really slow it down is to send my attention into my upper chest. And usually I'll put my hand on my chest, right around on my sternum, or it'll be my right hand right on my sternum or towards the left side where my heart is situated inside my chest. And what I'm doing is I'm sensing, right? So the mind thinks, and the body senses, right? So the way that we can enlist our mind to be a servant to the body, so to speak, is by sending our attention and just noticing what happens when I just rest my gentle attention inside of my chest. And it will be some for me. It, it I do. I'm very um, imaginal, so I see a lot of imagery. It doesn't always make sense, and I'm not trying to make sense of it because that's a mind thing. But I'm just listening and I'm noticing patterns. Like, okay, my how's my breathing? And where feels soft and flowing in my body? And if it doesn't feel that way, then I'm just going to glue my attention to the place inside my chest that feels soft and flowing. So, you know, if I had to break it down in steps, it would be first slow down and to set the intention to listen. Second would be to send your intention or your attention directly into your upper chest area. Third, because I think it's better if you put your hand directly on your chest. And your presence inside of your chest is gentle and soft. It's like arriving quietly next to someone and, you know, saying, I'm right here and nothing needs to change. They don't need to stop what they're doing. They don't need to pivot and attend to you. It's just arriving gently by someone's side. But in this case, you're arriving gently inside of your own chest. And, you know, my intention usually is like, what do I need to know? And then the second intention I usually have is like, how can I operate more from soul? That's the, literally the practice I've been obsessed with and it has really been serving me. So that would be a way that I would start enlisting my body as an ally in the healing process. You can use this for decision-making, right? So someone on the at the beginning of their journey, who's like, maybe I should, maybe they're listening to this podcast and they're like, well, maybe I should talk to someone, man, she really talked about some things. I would have them sit down in a quiet, undistracted place and put their hand on their heart and say, what? soul, what do you think I should do right now? What What's the next best thing that needs to happen? Or what's the most self-loving thing that can happen? And then listen and see how your body guides you, right? Because your mind is going to want to keep you in the old patterns that keep you locked in so that you never grow. I mean, that's the nature of mind is that it, it likes habits. And that includes somatic patterns, which are also a form of habit, but in the body. So that would be one of the ways I would encourage someone to start enlisting their body as an ally in the healing process. And then of course, do a lot of research. I mean, there's so, I mean, we have so many free resources on our website, like practices that you can do. I have this really basic handout called what's happening in my body. And it teaches you how to listen to your body through sensation, through imagery, through the five senses, like all of these ways. And when I have given that out, even when I've shared it amongst my colleagues, they're just like, wow, this is so helpful because again if you don't know if no, no one's ever taught you how to listen to your body this is a really great primer mm, yeah. uh, I love that and I'll be sure to have links to your website and all of that right um, so now Myra you know as far as spirituality or spiritual growth goes uh, what does that mean for you and how does that help you just bring this greater level of awareness and like expansiveness of love to your clients and your work and life. Yeah, I love, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because this is something that I'm wanting to lead with more in my role as a psychotherapist and beyond. Um, but one of the big deep whys about my business is that um, in wanting to help people heal from trauma and anxiety is that 
there's this goal to support people to be of, of service in the world because we need people. We need healthy, regulated people to support other people in doing the same. And spirituality to me is one of the great ways to um, great uh, paths to creating uh, more inner peace. Because if we all walked around with more light and more inner peace in our world, then you know, my belief is that we would be a lot less reactive. I mean, there's so much reactivity in our world right now. So the spiritual, my spiritual practices um, are grounded in, I was initiated into what's, uh, it's, it's a mystery school. And it has really, in my opinion, I, that happened back in 2018, has catapulted my whole career um, to have the practice that I have, to have the, like, I have 900% of ideal clients that I want to be working with. And when you heal from trauma, my belief is, is that you have greater access to spirit and spirituality, God, whatever you want to call that higher being, um, you know, source, universe, whatever you want to call it. That's to me been one of the greatest gifts that I've gotten by being in this role is that not only do I feel like I get to be of service to people in a very specific way, but I gain access to spirit in a way that is meaningful and much more real for me than when I was always and constantly dysregulated as a younger person. Mm. Wow. I love that. That is so beautiful, Myra. Now, you know, I could just talk to you over and over again <laughs> or all day long and have so many more questions, but I, a couple of things in closing one, I would love to circle back and do this again with you and dive deeper. I would love um, that. Yeah, I would absolutely love that. You've been so amazing and you've had so many incredibly just uh, heartfelt, uh, powerful insights here for us. And I just thank you so much for your wisdom and your time today. It really means so much to me. I'm so honored to have been here. So thank you so much, Sue, for the opportunity. Oh, you're awesome. And now uh, I thank you for your time. It's been awesome. So in closing, if you had one message that you'd want to leave us with, some words of wisdom, your hope for everybody out there, what would that message be? Um, well, I would repeat that saying about you can trust your body as an ally in the healing process. I think that is one of the most important things that I stand for as a clinician as, and as a human is to be embodied and really allow the wisdom, the innate and powerful intelligence of your body to guide and lead you towards, not just towards healing, but greater personal personal evolution and growth. Mm, I love that, Myra. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sue.